Knowledge is power. It's been said a zillion times before. It's a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true. The more we understand that these thought patterns that we fall prey to are not our own, I think the better position that we're in to step away from them, right? I mean, we all know the story of Rumpelstiltskin who lost his power once the woman could say his name. And life is a little bit like that. That was Jessica Wapner, a science journalist, author, and host of the One Click podcast, explaining the importance of education and awareness around weight and body image issues. And you're listening to Weight Matters, where we unpack the science behind our weight, why it matters, and the effects it has on our health, psychology, and society. This season, join Drs. Louis Aroni and Katherine Saunders, leading experts in the field of obesity medicine and co-founders of IntelliHealth, as they tackle the many ways weight impacts our broader health and along with experts in the field, explore innovative strategies for preventing and treating obesity. In this episode, Jessica discusses the history of the dangerous weight loss drug, DNP. She also unpacks some of the societal factors that make people susceptible to unhealthy weight loss techniques, including the role the internet plays in affecting body image and in spreading misinformation. We're glad to have you along for this journey. There's a lot to discuss, so let's dive in. We're so happy to have you with us today, Jessica. Thank you. So nice to be here. So we'd love to start by hearing a little bit about how you got interested in uh, researching DNP and becoming interested in the diet industry in general. So I was actually doing research about body heat at the time, so very much not related to dieting or weight issues or body image issues. Um, It was just totally unrelated research on body heat and came across a study that mentioned a chemical that had been used during World War I that had led munitions workers to lose weight very mysteriously and very dramatically. And it also at the same time caused their body heat to rise. That's why it was in the body heat research. And they were dying with temperatures of above 105 degrees. And that was how I discovered DNP or dinitrophenol was being used by factory workers to make bombs for World War I. Several of those factory workers died. Years later, some researchers from Stanford decided to try making the chemical safe because they thought if they could, they would have a miracle weight loss drug on their hands. Yeah, it really is such an interesting concept. When you think about it, what dinitrophenol does is it's a metabolic uncoupler. So it gets rid of extra energy in the um, body's mitochondria. But when you think about where that extra energy goes, it raises body temperature. It's like throwing logs on a fire. It raises your body temperature. So if you could do that, it would be quite interesting and might be helpful. We don't know if it's safe. We don't know if even if you didn't die of too high a body temperature, does it prolong life? 
that's the kind of question we have with the kind of medicines that we're developing now for the treatment of obesity. So w what did they find at Stanford? Did they find anything useful or were they able to improve on it? Yeah. So this was back in the 1930s and they developed a chemical. The most recognized name attached to it was Maurice Tainter. And they made a marketed diet drug out of DNP. It came under several different names eventually, and people started taking it. And a few years into that, or maybe not even a few years, but in any case, soon after it started hitting shelves and being prescribed, people started dying from it. There were also widespread reports of cataracts. It wasn't so much that, that people were developing cataracts in huge numbers, but that younger people were developing cataracts. It's not normally a young person's condition. And so one of the problems was that when people started losing weight, according to the recommended amount that their doctor had told them to take, what they would then do is just start taking more of it. Like there was no way to control how much DNP people were taking. And the chemical has a cumulative effect in the body. So the more you take, the worse it's going to be. In addition, it has a very thin threshold of harm. So with something like caffeine, you know, you can drink lots of coffee before the caffeine will start to affect you poorly. With DNP, it's a bit of a, a razor's edge before it can become harmful, and it's very difficult to control that. So for those reasons, it was eventually taken off the market. It took a while because it was considered a cosmetic, not a medication, and the FDA for a very long time had no jurisdiction over it. And so there had to be a whole act passed before the FDA could actually regulate it. It's fascinating to understand how little regulation there is in the supplement industry. And this is something that Dr. Roni is, is very well aware of, that it's hard to prevent supplements from, from being available to people who want to walk into a store and buy supplements. And they're allowed to make claims that are very misleading a lot of the time. So, you know, for us, when we see people who come to us to help with weight loss, we always ask them what they've tried in the past. And I would say the majority of people who come to see us eventually have tried and failed many, many, many different versions of supplement. I don't know about DNP, but probably some of our patients. This is an area that Dr. Roney is well aware of because he has actually been asked to testify as an expert witness in some of these Federal Trade Commission cases against some of the, the supplement manufacturers. Dr. Roney, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with some of these cases? Well, the first thing I want to say is that the vast majority of supplements that people buy, like if you're going to buy a vitamin or mineral supplement, the vast majority are safe. They've been tested and they work as they're advertised. But when it comes to certain categories, there are unscrupulous manufacturers and there are people out there selling these products who don't really know what they're, they're doing. 
And weight loss is one of those areas where there are many abuses, where claims are made which are, in fact, outlandish. And what the companies do because of the way they are lightly regulated in the United States is they wait until the FDA or Federal Trade Commission tells them to stop. So they make an outlandish claim. Uh, they keep doing it until the Federal Trade Commission or FDA tells them to stop. And then they say, oh, you know, we're sorry. And then they go ahead and sell it in a slightly different way. But they've already gotten public attention with their initial advertising. And that's the type of thing that I think is now epidemic on the internet, that anybody can do this with very little control. And also products can be shipped internationally. And so you have no idea where a product is coming from. And if it is safe, if it were safe, you don't know what the quality control is. So it's, it's become a morass online of, of things that uh, may or may not be safe. And the issue of adulteration is something that we found was just uh, endemic, that things that got people to lose weight always seem to be adulterated with other compounds that were not listed on the bottle, and those were really the active ingredients. So it, it really has been a mess, in my opinion. So what else have you found about DNP in your research on it? Well, today, DNP is available on the internet. So what happened, you know, earlier I mentioned that the FDA banned it, and that lasted for a little while. It then had a resurgence in the 1980s um, through a very strange set of coincidences with a doctor who was looking to treat people for weight loss and someone that he met in prison. Later still, and we talk about that story fully in the podcast, but I won't regale you with the, the details of it here. And later with the advent of the internet, of course, that made DNP much more accessible. And it resurged mostly actually in the world of bodybuilding among men, a lot of talk on chat forums about DNP among bodybuilders and would-be bodybuilders. So I'm sure you know with what you were speaking about with supplements that the internet is the Wild West and there's not a ton of reliable information and there is a lot of people cobbling together their own regimen um, trying to figure out how to hack their bodies in order to get them to be the shape that they want them to be, which oftentimes is a very unnatural shape attainable by almost nobody. Jessica, I know that you've done quite a bit of research about body image and societal pressures to look a certain way. And this is one of the reasons why people turn to the internet and can change their lives with one click. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you've learned about body image and societal pressures? Yeah, absolutely. One of the most fascinating aspects of reporting on this was discovering the history of body image issues and for just how long we have been doing things to ourselves to make our bodies closer in line to someone's beauty standards, wherever they may have come from. So, of course, 
we know this, right, when we look at historical paintings and see the really tight corsets or the high heels that we obviously still wear today, there are so many different things that we have done throughout history that some of them, of course, seem very strange to us today. For example, women used to whiten their chest area with like a powder, like a whitening makeup, and then redraw blue veins on there. This was considered, you know, more attractive. There have been times where being heavier was considered more attractive. There have been times where being more waif-like has been more attractive. Things have gone just really up and down, all different kinds of hairstyles. There was a time where people would do things to their teeth, uh, like blackening their teeth to make it look, you know, more appealing. <laughs> Hard to imagine, but that how was the that standard. How can that look appealing? Yeah, I, I can't I understand know. how that looks appealing. <laughs> I know, I know. It was a, I think it was just a blip, but it happened. And using different fragrances, of course. These are things that we're familiar with. So all of that is to say this pressure has been going on for centuries. It's not new. However, it's also true that social media has ramped it up hugely because the amount of images that we see every day is so vast, almost to be incomprehensible. You know, you you can't really imagine someone from the 15th century coming across the level of, you know, this image, this image, this image, this image, as we do today. Right. If you think about back then, if you saw one painting, that would be, you know, that would be the oh, all the images you saw in a in a day. That would probably be something. But <laughs> mm-hmm. now, hundreds, if not thousands, are available to you. And uh, do you think this has led to desperation for people who want to have a certain body size uh, that has led to unsafe practices? For some people, for sure. There was one researcher that I spoke with, Renee Engeln, who has applied the term beauty sickness to what she has seen among women in particular. Her research has focused on women. Um, This affects men and women. And she talks about it not just from the standpoint of the most extreme behaviors like severe eating disorders, but also Women who, for example, may have run for office if they hadn't been so concerned about what comments would be lobbed their way about their appearance, or women who have come to her in middle to older age saying, I can't believe how much of my life I wasted trying to fit into a pair of jeans. So I think it's really important to recognize that, yes, there are some really extreme issues, really extreme scenarios going on where body image and body dysmorphia is concerned, which is people who see their bodies as differently shaped than what they are. And this can be a very paralyzing condition that affects both men and women. But I think it's really important to recognize the kind of more insidious nature of these concerns that affect us every day in ways that, you know, we've kind of all just lived with 
since childhood, probably. Something that really struck me in your podcast when you described the people who gravitated towards DNP, one of the women had gained a tremendous amount of weight because she needed a psychiatric medication and she had gained a hundred pounds and despite everything she was doing, just could not stop the weight gain and needed the medication. So she turned to DNP as, as, you know, an act of desperation. It was very interesting to me to see that, you know, that's very typical, a, a story like this of people who end up coming to see us in our, you know, weight management practice. And one of the themes that kept coming up when I was listening to your podcast and when we were talking about your podcast as a group is just that these are patients who we see and who we can help. And we have we have medical options that are very safe and very effective. And this is exactly what we do. And one of our, you know, our main mission is really to increase awareness that this field of medicine exists and that we can really help people. Do you have suggestions for what else we can do to continue to raise awareness as you're doing that these things are out here, but that they're also, you know, safer, effective alternatives? Well, I think that for me, one of the most powerful messages that came through the reporting that I did for One Click is about weight oppression and that no matter what a person does as far as trying to diet or exercise or alter their appearance, that what matters is is actually identifying the underlying psychologies behind it and becoming more self-determining in what kinds of psychologies we allow to control our thinking and how we think about ourselves and our bodies and our beauty. Yeah, I know just what you're talking about. It's interesting because we, in our center here at Wild Cornell, we don't do cosmetic weight loss. We are dealing with people who have health problems related to their weight. Our average woman weighs well over 200 pounds, is taking five or six medications, or they've gained weight because of a medical problem. For example, we see a lot of patients with breast cancer who gain weight as a result of treatment surrounding chemotherapy. And one of the issues is how do you, we're not trying to get someone to lose weight for cosmetic reasons, but I certainly understand that, that issue. We're trying to help people to better health. We're physicians, we're trying to improve someone's health, stop them from developing diabetes, heart disease, cancer, the many illnesses that are associated with obesity. One mother talked to me about her daughter who had gained weight, who you were referring to earlier, um, from her medication. And when she went to see a doctor, she told the doctor that she was looking into taking DNP, that she wanted to take DNP. And the doctor said, no, no, don't do that. I'll help you, you know, find something else that won't ruin your heart, something like that. And they didn't hear from her, is what the mother relayed to me. And maybe the doctor did have something in mind. Maybe she just hadn't gotten around to it. But for me, one takeaway from that small moment was that her daughter was 
really, really desperate. She so wanted her body back. And I think that that is so understandable. If your body has been wildly altered by a medication that you have to take in order to live, you know, in order to exist in life, whether for cancer or mental health, whatever it might be, I can't imagine it personally. I mean, I think that that must be an extremely upsetting situation to feel you have no more control over your body and it's gained weight and you don't look like who you were and you don't feel like who you were. And I have wondered if that doctor had responded right away and really responded to the severity of the situation, the emotional severity of the situation, whether they might have had something else, whether this woman might have had something else to try besides DNP, which she later died from in a really, she had a very, very terrible death in her early 20s. You know, one of the things that's even worse is that everybody blames you for it happening. I mean, we see that all the time. So your body is out of control because you're taking a medicine or have one of the many causes of, of weight gain that we have now recognized. And we've estimated that 15% of the epidemic of obesity is being caused by medication-induced weight gain, a whole variety of medicines. So just imagine that happening and you're losing control of your weight, you want your body back, and people are blaming you for it happening. That's the situation that people with obesity are suffering through. Yeah. I mean, of course, the stigma in that regard is also very difficult to grapple with, I think, as well. It's, I really, I don't know, I, my heart goes out to people in that situation. And I think it's a very difficult cultural issue to deal with. Agree. We we had a, another episode on our podcast about weight bias and weight stigma, and it's just incredible how, how prevalent it is. And it's something that we see with our patients all the time. I don't think we have any patients who have not experienced it in some way. It seems to me that one thing that can really make a difference is keeping an open line of communication and encouraging patients to disclose what they're taking and when they're taking it and how they're taking it and not being judgmental toward them, right? Because people will try things. They'll try what they can afford. They'll try what celebrities are trying. They'll try what other people have taken that seems to have worked. Like we're all, we all do this in some aspect of our lives. And I think part of the divide between physicians and patients can come when patients feel judged or when they feel they can't be open and honest about what they're trying. I mean, there is a history of some very wild approaches to diet in the world. And there's the grapefruit diet, there's the Hollywood diet, there's Elvis's diet, which involved taking sleeping pills that just put him to sleep for a long time so he didn't need to eat. There are all kinds of things that we've done in the name of weight loss. And considering the pressure that many of us feel when it comes to our looks, I think it's compassion first and then counsel second so that patients do feel comfortable 
being open with what they're doing, because if you don't know what they're doing, then that's really where the problem starts. The mantra of our center is, it's not your fault. Uh, Mm. We tell every patient that it's not your fault. You did not do this. You didn't cause this to occur. And we're on your side. We're fighting this disease, and we are going to make a difference. And again, we're talking about people who have significant health-affecting weight issues. And I completely agree that being on the side of the patient is the most important thing. But we, you know, and we find people crying when we tell them this. They, mm-hmm. they begin to cry because no one has ever told them that it's not their fault. Yeah, I can understand it. And, and we're all in, we've gotten ourselves into a pretty impossible situation if you consider, you know, we live in a world where the supermarkets are lined with 100, 200, 300 more varieties of just chips, <laughs> let alone yeah. everything else, you know. And there's commercials where people make food look as appealing as possible. I mean, we are told to give in to temptation at every turn and at the same time to have a body that looks like it never gives in to temptation. So, I mean, it is an absolutely impossible situation that that we have uh, gotten ourselves into. You're absolutely right, Jessica. We see this all the time that it's interesting for us because the way we educate our our patients, and as Dr. Rennie said, the first thing we do is to explain this is not your fault. And then we go ahead to explain to them kind of the physiology of how weight regulation works. And actually what's fascinating is that with excess weight, there's actually inflammation in the area of the hypothalamus, which is the energy regulatory area of the brain. So that when you have excess weight, it actually makes it so that it's harder to feel full and you end up feeling more hungry. So people who have obesity or people who are overweight tend to be more hungry, tend to eat more, and it's sort of this feed forward mechanism. So it's absolutely a perfect storm of the physiology of weight increase along with what we call our obesogenic environment, which you described perfectly. So we're we're all in this very, very, very difficult situation. And so the work you're doing to raise awareness of not so great ways to try to address the problem and the work that we're doing to try to raise awareness of the fact that we have safe, effective medical options is really so important for people to know about. Yeah, absolutely. It's a difficult situation for sure. And I mean, we tried to bring light to it through the lens of DNP in one click. And I think there's many people who are trying to shed some light on the issues. Yes. Now, let me ask one last thing. And that is to stop these kinds of practices. Do you think anything can be done trying to police the internet? Is that actually possible? Or is it always going to be buyer beware? Well, I'll tell you, I, as part of my reporting for one click, I purchased DNP because I wanted to see how easy it was and what the whole experience would be like. I had set up an email account for that and found a website that was selling it. And I recently got an email from the person who I bought it from saying, our domain name is changing. 
and it had their new website. And this is exactly what goes on. I was surprised to get the alert about it, but this is exactly how it goes. It's a game of whack-a-mole. That was really how it was described by people at the FDA who try to stop these websites from proliferating. Once one gets shut down, another one comes back on. And what it would take to really put a stop to that would change the nature of the internet. That kind of change has much broader implications that have negative consequences, for sure, in terms of how the internet is regulated, uh, what's available on the internet. And it's just an extremely difficult proposition because it takes nothing to move a website to a new domain name. And it also depends on what happens to people once they're caught selling DNP. And DNP is complicated because it has approved industrial uses. It's used as like a weed killer. It's used as a dye because it's very bright yellow. And actually people who take it, their skin can start to turn very yellow. Not like jaundice, like actually look yellow, like paint on their hands. And because it has these other uses, it's very difficult to catch people who are selling it because they just say, oh, here's your weed killer. We just we just happen to have, you know, to be selling it in capsule sizes, <laughs> which is obviously ridiculous. People have been caught, people have gone to prison, and that's potentially another way that other would-be sellers are deterred from selling DNP to people because of prison sentences. But in the U.S., it would be very difficult to bring any kind of manslaughter charge against someone selling DNP. It's really about violating interstate commerce laws. In the U.K., there has been someone who's gone to prison for manslaughter for selling DNP to people who died from it, but not in the U.S. So can anything be done? Possibly a little bit. I think there's more that could be done. I think there's things going on that might be making it easier for sellers to hide online. And I think, again, it then returns to the bigger issue about why we turn to these things in the first place. So Jessica, for our listeners who are interested in this subject matter, and we have been very excited to, to hear you speak today, what would you say would be your one take-home point or one take-home piece of advice from all of the research that you've done on body image, on DNP, what is the most important thing for people to know about? Something that multiple people I spoke with talked about, and, and this was both researchers and people who've suffered the blows of body dysmorphia and other issues, is to rid your Instagram feed from images that make you feel bad. That is actually something very simple and powerful that people can do, um, that we can all do, because also what we look at, of course, we all know by now, right, the algorithms know us. (laughs) They know our preferences. And the more we look at images that are healthy, the more those are the images that will start to be offered and that we'll see. I think you're never going to get a really clean, healthy, wonderful experience on social media. It's just not designed to give us that. It's designed to make us 
stay on the website. And we usually don't stay on these websites because they make us feel good. We usually stay on these websites because they make us feel bad. It's horrible to say, but I think it's closer to the truth anyway. However, ridding our social media accounts of things that make us feel bad about our bodies would be, I think, a really powerful step to make, be a very powerful step to take. And another thing is really knowledge is power. It's been said a zillion times before. It's a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true. The more we understand that these thought patterns that we fall prey to are not our own, I think the better position that we're in to step away from them, right? I mean, we all know the story of Rumpelstiltskin who lost his power once the woman could say his name. And life is a little bit like that. When we can name something, it loses its power over us. And so I think the more we can become consciously aware of why we feel the way we feel and that it isn't something that, you know, one day we woke up and decided like, I really want to spend the next 10 years trying to fit into these genes and feeling really bad about the fact that I don't, <laughs> you know, nobody wakes up and says that. The more we become aware of that, I think the less a hold it can have on us. That was wonderful and really great pieces of advice for our audience. One last question. We wanted to just ask you briefly if you have any questions for us as physicians dealing with metabolic health issues in relation to the research that you've done on body image and DNP. So it sounds like something that you're really trying to talk about with patients is to be okay with thinking about weight as a health issue, not as a cosmetic issue, not as a body image issue, but to be able to approach it with a kind of physiology, medical mindset. And I wonder how you would address that with young people for whom weight is really a, a thing about looks and therefore they wouldn't necessarily look to their doctor about it maybe. I don't know, but how do you approach this with young people? That's a great question, Jessica. You're right. The patients who come to see us in our practice, some of them are coming because their other healthcare providers have, have suggested that they see us to address weight-related health complications. But some of our patients find us on their own and a subset of those patients are coming to us more to kind of look better and feel better instead of coming to us for health reasons. And so really no matter how people get to us or why they're coming to us, our training as healthcare providers is, is to make people healthier. We're definitely not as much in the psychiatry space where we're trained to you know focus on body dysmorphia and focus on appearance as much. So what we really do is to focus on the health complications of weight and talk about how weight loss can really improve 
all of the patient's weight-related health complications and prevent progression to other weight complications. So we really bring it back to the physiology of what happens in your body. One of the colleagues that we have in the field, Dr. Lee Kaplan, who is also one of the leaders and pioneers of the field of obesity medicine, always tries to explain that obesity is a disease, as we talk about all the time, and it really has to be compared to what he calls the cultural desire for thinness, how it's there's really a distinction. And, you know, we focus on obesity and not the cultural desire for thinness. And so what we try to make very clear is that for patients who are coming to us for whatever the reason is, what we're able to do is to, to make them healthier. And as a side effect, almost, they may feel better about their bodies and they may be happy with their appearance. But I think one of the most important things that we want people to know is that there are treatments for weight loss that are effective and that are safe and that we medically supervise so that people don't need to feel that their only option is to turn to the internet. So we're really, really, really trying to increase awareness of the availability of healthcare providers like us and the availability of really safe and effective treatments. Right. Great. Thank you so much, Jessica. This was a great conversation and, and we really appreciate your taking the time to speak with us. Thank you very much for having me. It's great talking with you. Thank you for listening to Weight Matters. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. To learn more about how Dr. Saunders and Dr. Aroni are working to transform specialized treatments for chronic conditions through the best in medical science and advanced technologies, visit IntelliHealth.co backslash podcast. And be sure to follow, rate, and review this show wherever you listen to podcasts. 